like everybody else, um, just kind of watching this whole thing happen. Um, just kind of watching uh, from the news, watching how people are reacting, watching how people are um, processing this, dealing with this. And you know, when stuff like this happens, and stuff like this doesn't happen all the time. I was laughing with the guys earlier. I, I keep hearing the word unprecedented over and over and over. It's like, the, it's like the word of the month. Unprecedented, unprecedented. It's just this whole thing. It's just, it's just, it's just something new for everybody. And what this kind of stuff does is it makes us ask really big questions. Uh, it makes us start thinking about life a little bit differently. It kind of pulls us out of the ruts of just every day, going through the motions, life. It makes us ask big questions. It makes us uh, tune into universal feelings that we're all feeling as human beings. And when you boil this thing, I was thinking about this yesterday. I was sitting at the park, and I'm just thinking, man, when you boil this whole thing down, and you zoom out of it, and you get out of the weeds of it, and you look at it, really, the nucleus of it, the whole thing could be boiled into one word. And that word is life. Life. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Well, let me explain a little bit what I mean, I mean by that. Uh, this whole thing comes down to life because ultimately, if it weren't for our human value for life, none of this would be happening. The reason that we're doing everything that we're doing as a country, as people, is because we value life. We see life as valuable. Life is the one thing we can't create. Life is the reason our planet is so amazing and the reason our planet is so beautiful, so unique, is because it has life. And the reason that we are freaking out some people are freaking out, is because we value life. And because we value life, we hate death. Because death and life are not meant to go together. I know we've all heard really cute bumper sticker, fluffy things that have talked about how, you know, um, well, life is just, death is just part of life. And, and death is just part of being human. That's not true. Death is not supposed to be part of life. Death is actually something that's not supposed to be here. And that's why we get so upset when it happens. That's why when things like this happen, it's off-putting for us. Because death actually is our enemy. It's interesting, uh, you're going to laugh, but a few days ago, my wife and I went down to the store and we got adopted some new children. Um, they're this tall, yellow and fluffy. And uh, they're little chickies. We adopted eight chickies. And of course, like you do, I mean, you just instantly like love these little guys. By the way, if you're dealing with stress, they're like therapy birds. You just hold them, everything feels like it's gonna be okay. They're just so soft. Peck at your hand. We named them all, we gave them all names and they're cute and everything. They'll be ugly in two weeks when they start going through chicken puberty. But um, for now, they're, they're these cute little chicks, right? And, and so we've just been enjoying, you know, giving them baths, feeding them, all this kind of stuff. Yesterday, we start to notice that one of them is kind of smaller than the other ones, kind of stuck, can't get up sometimes. The other ones just kind of run right over the top. And it really just starts messing with us. Like, what's wrong with us, man? It just, it's just a baby chicken, but it's like really messing with us. And my wife last night, she was like talking about the chicken in her sleep. She was so worried about this baby chicken. She's like, don't squeeze it in her sleep, talking, you know, talking about the kids. Um, and both of us were just really sad because we kind of knew what was coming. We knew, we knew probably a few of them were going to die, you know. And we get up this morning, and sure enough, one of them died. Now, I know that's silly and probably not a big deal, but it kind of made us sad. It made us sad because death is not supposed to be part of life, and everybody knows it. 
If we didn't think that, we wouldn't be shutting down our entire economy to try to preserve life. We know life is important. Life is the most valuable resource we have, especially our own, and we'll do anything to save it. That's the reality. We know life is not supposed to include dying. Now, the interesting thing is that the only life we've ever known as human beings on this earth is a dying life. The only life we've ever known is a dying life. From the second you were born, you took your first breath, you were dying. Everything that we know in our universe is is dying. We've only ever experienced dying life. I remember an illustration of this a couple years ago. I was hiking down the trail and I was coming down and I I noticed in the distance this this massive tree. It's this huge trunk, just really vibrant looking and green. It was so big that it stood out from all the other trees and it just totally captivated my attention. And as I'm walking down the trail and I just kept looking at it like, wow, that tree is just amazing, just full of life. And then as I got closer to it, I started noticing something was a little wrong with it. I noticed that the, the, the bottom part of the trunk, the bottom part of the pine needles were actually kind of brown and dead. And as I got closer, I started realizing, man, that, that tree is actually not doing so good. And then I got really close and I looked at the backside of the trunk and it was completely hollow on the inside. The tree was actually dead. But from far away, it looked like it was alive. Now, it still had some remnants of life, even though the tree itself was actually dead. That's the only kind of life we've ever experienced in our experience is life that will end. None of us have experienced anything other than that. All of us are watching the clock on our own lives ticking. And and, and this threatening of life begins to, to provoke interesting feelings in people because we want to preserve what life we have left. We don't want to see it go away. The the little bit of dying life that we have left, we don't want it to go. And this is really what's behind all of what's going on right now in our society. I want to talk to you about life this morning. I want to talk to you about a different kind of life. I want to talk to you about life the way it's supposed to be, the life the way it was intended to be. So let's get into this. Uh, Before we get into our text, let me just give you a couple things. The Greek language has three words for life, and the Bible uses all three of them. Okay, let me give them to you really quick so you want to jot them down if you're at home. The first one is called bios. Bios. Uh, This probably sounds familiar to you. It's where we get our word biology. Um, Bios is physical life. It's living organisms. It's the body that I'm in right now. Okay? It's 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 just the the physicality of the life that we live within. That's bios. And then the second word is psychos. And that probably sounds familiar to you as well. We get psychology, psychological, psyche. It's the life of the mind. It's the inner life. Okay? And we still don't really understand much about this life. We don't even really understand just how we have this sort of this consciousness. But we do know is that when our psychos leaves our bios, we're dead. Okay? When our physical body and our, and, our, and our mind life, when those two separate, we're gone. Now, those two lives are all we've really ever experienced in our experience. But the New Testament, they use a new word. They use an, another word, a third word to describe life. And that life word is zoe. Z-O-E. Zoe. And Zoe life is unlike anything we've ever experienced. It's the uncreated life, the self-sustaining life. It's the eternal life of God himself. It's the divine life. It's a uniquely, a life that is uniquely possessed by God. Well, where do we see it? Let me, let me show you a couple passages. John chapter 1, verse 4, if you can be really quick, uh, you can turn there with me. Otherwise, uh, just listen. But John chapter 1, verse 4, here's what John the Apostle says in speaking about Jesus. He says, in him was life, zoe, 
In him was Zoe, and the life, Zoe, was the light of men. So what's interesting is that in this moment of death and darkness, Jesus comes into the dying bios of the world, and he, the Zoe life, penetrates into it. For the first time, we see divine life coming into the dead, the dead life of this world. And, and John says that Jesus is this Zoe life. He brings with him this Zoe life, this divine life. He penetrates into this dying world with this divine life. Another one, John 10, 10 This is what Jesus says. He says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they might have life. Same word, zoe. I came that they might have zoe. He's not saying I came that they might have bios. He's not saying I came so that we can live physically longer. He's saying I came so that they could have divine life. That's why I came. He came to restore this zoe back to the world. We see this life in Genesis. If you look at the garden, Okay, remember the tree of life in the garden? What happened after the tree of life was separated from mankind? Death began. Humans started having a clock that counted down. Just like I have a clock telling me when my sermon needs to be done. Our life has a clock now because they were removed from the tree of life. That was part of the fall. And in the book of Revelation, when God restores all of creation, what do we see? Another tree of life because that Zoe life is restored. We see this life in the, the, the picture of um, God speaking to Moses. Remember when he comes to the burning bush? What's with that? What's with the burning bush? What's interesting about that picture is it's the Zoe life. The bush is burning, but it's not being consumed. And we've never seen anything like that in our world. Fire exists by something else dying, right? It consumes the life of something else. But this bush, this bush is not being, it's not consuming anything. It's a self-sustaining life. A Zoe life. And this was the picture that Yahweh used to, to describe himself to Moses. He says, I am that I am. There is no, there is no, there's nothing I need, God says. I am that I am. There's nothing to describe me. I am the Zoe life. John 4, 14, but whoever drinks, Jesus says to the woman at the well, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will, will never be thirsty again, implying that the water of this world makes us more thirsty. You take a drink, you're going to need a drink again later. And he says, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal zoe, life. The reason Jesus came into this world was to bring life. You know, the Bible is not a story about coping with death. The Bible actually is the story of how life triumphs over death, overtakes death conquers death. So a lot of us as Christians, we're sitting here in this moment and we're looking at everything happening and all the death around us and, 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 and seeing how it could get worse and more people could die and, and people are freaking out. The reason we're freaking out is because all we've ever known is our little life. But in reality, we as Christians understand why people are dying. They're dying because we as humans have been disconnected from God's Zoe life. That's what happened at the fall. That's what happened in the garden. It's interesting, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 20, Solomon, he's, he's kind of venting about how much the world sucks, and, and he's just frustrated, and he's frustrated with how depressing he is, and this is a guy that had everything he could possibly want, okay, all the money, everything he could want, and he comes to this place where he says, it's all vanity, uh, and then he says this profound sentence in chapter 320, he says, all go to one place, all are from the dust, and to the dust all return. What he's getting at there is he's saying that, you know, you remember how God created man? He took dirt, dust, 
and then he breathed his zoe life into it. So he took bios, and he breathed zoe into that bios. And what did it create? A human being. So that means that we are one part God's divine life and one part dirt, creation. Okay? And when sin entered and, 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 and the, the, um, there was a separation at that moment, what was split? What was split was God's divine life from our physical life. And what are we left with? Dirt. We're left with dirt. So, so we die, and what happens? Our bodies turn to dirt. So the, the answer to the human condition, condition is a restoration of God's zoe life into this world that is at this point dis, disconnected from it. So that's my introduction. Here's our outline. Three easy points. You can jot them down. They're actually questions, and, and we're going to answer these questions in the text. So here it is. Um, three questions about zoe life. Number one, why is it important? Number two, how do we get it? Number three, what does it look like? Okay, why is it important? How do we get it? What does it look like? We'll just go through those three points, and then we'll end. So before we look at our text, and I'm giving you a lot of introduction, a lot of background, but I need to give you a little bit more. This will help this make more sense once you read it. In our text in Acts chapter 18, where Paul is ministering is about 50 AD. It's about 20 or so years after Jesus died and rose and ascended. Okay? So what a lot of people don't realize was that before Jesus came onto the scene, before he uh, really became sort of such a a famous and central figure in, in Palestine and Israel, someone preceded him, and that person's name was John the Baptist. So before Jesus came onto the scene, John the Baptist, um, who it was told would come in the Old Testament, he was wildly popular. I mean, this guy had a massive following. Um, he had tons of disciples. And if you remember, he was kind of a crazy uh, you know, looking guy. He, he lived out in the, in the wilderness and people just flocked to this guy. And he was baptizing hundreds of people. Kind of an interesting dynamic. You had 400 years of silence since God had spoken. All that pent up was, was just kind of made a blasted light on, on, on John the Baptist. People were just like, what does this guy have to say? We want to hear what he has to say. And what's interesting about John the Baptist was is that he didn't get to live to see what actually happened with Jesus. Can you imagine that? I mean, Jesus was captivating. He was a captivating person. He would do miracles. He would do things. The way he spoke was with authority. And John the Baptist knew this guy seems like he is the one that the, all of the Bible has been saying is, is going to come. But John the Baptist was wrestling with that. And he died before he actually got to see Jesus rise. He died before he got to see Jesus go to the cross. So there's this one point in the, in, in the, the Gospels where John actually sends some of his people to Jesus. And he says, hey, John wants to know, are you the guy or what? Are you the one that we're waiting for? Are you the one that's going to change the world? Are you the one that's going to swallow up death with life? Are you the one that came to bring Zoe life into this world? And John's confused about that. And because he's confused about that, some of his disciples are confused about that. And what a lot of people don't realize was that John, if you remember, got beheaded, okay, by Herod for calling him out for sleeping with his uh, brother's wife, you know. Uh, And so he gets beheaded. And after he gets beheaded, a lot of John's disciples never really got the memo about who Jesus really was. They didn't hear the stories about how Jesus actually was, in fact, the Christ. He did raise from the dead, did ascend to the right hand of the Father, is now ruling in heaven. They didn't all get that memo. So there's a lot of disciples of John who are God's people, who were saved by an Old Testament faith, are still unsure about who Jesus actually was. And in the Old Testament, people were saved by their faith in Yahweh. We know that. Um, And and Jesus paid for all of the debts of everybody before he came. 
None can be saved apart from Christ. But what we don't realize sometimes is that there was kind of this overlap. I want you to picture this in your head. You have the Old Testament and you have the New Testament. And the dividing point between the Old Testament and the New Testament is Jesus himself. But there were a lot of believers, there were a lot of followers of God who were sort of in this overlap place where they were still in the old covenant, but yet the new covenant had begun, and they found themselves um, sort of in the middle of the two. So understanding that, now let's look at the text, Acts chapter 18. And we're going to start in verse 18. I'm just going to briefly read through it, make a couple comments, and then I'll show you kind of what I think Luke wants us to see here when he writes this. Verse 18 of Acts 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila at Centria, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. I'd love to nerd out on that and talk about why he did that. I don't have the time. Uh, If you've got a study Bible, crack it open and look into that. But needless to say, Paul is just finishing his time in Corinth. Uh, He spent a considerable amount of time in Corinth and now he is headed back home. He's headed back to check in home base in Antioch. He brings his new friends, Aquila, Priscilla, the tent makers, his new travel companions with him. He leaves them in Ephesus and he continues on. Verse 20, when they asked him to stay for longer, that's Ephesus, they asked him to stay for longer, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. So Paul's kind of on a mission here. He's wrapping up his second missionary journey, which has been a matter of years. He's trying to get back to Antioch, where he started from, to give a report to um, the rest of the believers about all the amazing things God's done, all the churches that were planted, all the people that have been saved, all the kingdom expansion that's happened, okay? So he's, this is just kind of travel details here. In verse 22, when he landed at Caesarea, that's the main port in Palestine, he went up and greeted the church. That's up, as in Jerusalem. He went to Jerusalem, greeted the church. And then went down to Antioch. Okay, remember Antioch was kind of the home base of the Christian missionary, um, kind of the aircraft carrier. We talked about a beachhead of kingdom advancement uh, in Syria. So he gets back to to, to Antioch. He gives this report. Um, After spending some time there, he departs again. I mean, Paul didn't like sitting around. He wanted to be out. He wanted to be out on the mission field. So he only spends a little bit of time in Antioch, he quickly heads off onto what we consider his third missionary journey. Um, in reality, it's his last free missionary journey. His next journey, he's in chains. He's in prison. Okay, So after spending some time there, he departed, went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia. Okay, That's just north of Syria, what we would now call uh, Asia Minor, or pardon me, Turkey is what we would call it now, and Phrygia strengthening all the disciples. Now, this missionary journey that Paul's on is a little different than his last ones. He's not planting churches. He's strengthening churches, okay? He's not planting churches. He's going back to encourage the churches um, in some of the regions that had already had churches planted. Okay, now that's just all travel details. Now, focus in here. Verse 24. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria. Okay, pause there. So now Luke, the author, he's panning from Paul back to Ephesus where we're going to meet a new character that we haven't yet met named Apollos. And this guy ends up becoming actually incredibly influential later as sort of the first generation Christian leaders after the apostles. Uh, And Luke thinks it's, it's necessary for us to to meet him. Okay, So he introduces Apollos, first of all, as a native of Alexandria. Okay, Alexandria actually in this time was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It's in Egypt at the very northern top of Africa, across the Mediterranean from, from Israel. Alexandria was massive. 
It was massive. And Alexandria was known actually for having 400,000 a volume library, which in that time was unheard of. This is before the printing press. So this was like the center of education. It used to be Athens, but Athens had sort of dwindled down a little bit at that point. And now, really, Alexandria was kind of the, the primary place of thought um, in education. So this guy, Apollos, he's coming out with a pedigree. I mean, he's got, you know, he's probably got a couple doctorates. It was how we would talk about it today. Um, actually, Alexandria was the place where they actually wrote what we call the Greek Septuagint which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament, just for you nerds out there. So he's coming out from Alexandria to Ephesus, um, and it says he was an eloquent man. Okay, so he's, he's got some chops for communication. Okay, he's a good communicator. He's eloquent. Uh, it says he's competent in the scriptures. So he knows how to teach the scriptures. Uh, and, of course, when it's saying scriptures, it's talking about Old Testament scripture uh, at this point. 25, he'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, that is Yahweh, when you see capital L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh, okay, he'd been instructed in the Mosaic Covenant, and being fervent in spirit, that's not the Holy Spirit, that's his spirit, okay, he's a charismatic guy, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John, okay, remember what we just talked about? There's a, there's a whole group of disciples of John the Baptist at this point that had been baptized into John's baptism that didn't yet know that Jesus had come and gone to the cross and had risen and ascended. Okay, so this is one of those guys. This is Apollos. He comes to Ephesus. He begins speaking boldly in the synagogue, verse 26. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explain to him the way of God more accurately. So Apollos was zealous. He was all about Jesus. He was all for Jesus. He just hadn't heard the good news of what Jesus had actually done. He was still looking forward to what Jesus was going to do. And so uh, Aquila and Priscilla, they they correct him in this moment graciously. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, uh, the brothers encouraged him, wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. I think I'm going to sneeze. I don't know. And now that I'm thinking about it, I don't feel like I can. This has never happened before. All my years of preaching, I've never sneezed from the pulpit. Okay, it's going away now. But just, it might be coming. I'm just going to warn you. Um, by the way, shout out to Trevor Yars, by the way, from The Hive for live, live casting this. Trevor, you're awesome. Thank you for being here on Sunday morning. I uh, appreciate it. Uh, this is a total rabbit trail. There's a squirrel. Okay, back to the text. Chapter 19. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. So Paul, back in Ephesus now, and there he found some disciples. Okay, disciples of who? John the Baptist. Disciples of John the Baptist, Okay. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. So again, Luke is trying to get us to to, to notice something here. And that is that there's all of these disciples of John who had not yet heard the good news of what Jesus had actually done. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance... 
telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus, verse five. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying, and they were about 12 men in all. Okay, speaking in tongues there, I know it sounds weird, but what it's actually talking about is speaking in literal languages, being able to speak the gospel in languages that you don't know, other literal physical languages. I don't think this is talking about some kind of heavenly language. I think this is talking about speaking the gospel to people in a tongue that you never heard, some tribe, some nation that you don't even know their language, and you're just able to say it. Verse 7, they were about 12 men in all, and he entered the synagogue for three months, spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued to unbelief, in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, that's what they used to call Christianity, by the way, the way, okay, the way. Uh, another word that they used to call it was the life, the life. I actually thought that would have been a cool name for this church, the life. Before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This, listen to this, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So Paul has such an influence in Ephesus, he's literally able to set up a school for two years. He's basically able to offer an associate's degree, okay? Uh, in the hall of Tyrannus, every day, people are coming in to hear the theology and the doctrine of Paul um, and, and the gospel, and he just unpacks it. Can you imagine getting to be part of that for two years? So there's our text, now the question is, what is Luke wanting us to see here? I, I think there's a, there's a clear, again, when we approach the Bible, we don't go, what does this say to me? We approach it and say, what, did this, what does this say? Not what does it mean to me, but what does it mean, okay? And Luke, who wrote this, inspired by the Holy Spirit, had an intention for us to read this and to see a thread here, see a common theme. And I think that that common theme here is the superiority of baptism in Jesus' name versus baptism in John the Baptist. Not, not that anyone was baptized in John the Baptist's name, but if you remember, John the Baptist was dunking people before Jesus came onto the scene. He was down in the Jordan River, dunking, dunking people after, one after another. People were coming from all over the place. And I think what Luke is trying to show us here is that it is not enough for them to have just simply been baptized by John the Baptist. There's something that has happened between the time that John the Baptist came onto the scene and Jesus died on the cross and rose that is absolutely necessary. And I think that that thing is the Zoe life. It is the access to the Zoe life. Now let me just speak to this really quick. What's the difference between John the Baptist's baptism and Jesus' baptism? If you're thinking critically, some of you might go, well, wasn't Jesus baptized by John the Baptist? Did it count for nothing? Let me explain it like this. John's the, John the Baptist's baptism, it was a looking forward and preparation. It was a ceremonial act to say that we are preparing ourselves for the coming Messiah who will be here, okay? That's all it was. It was an act of repentance. It was an act of saying, hey, we're ready. And it was something that Israel needed because Israel had been in rebellion from God for hundreds of years. So John the Baptist comes onto the scene and he says, hey, Come and prepare the way, prepare yourself for the coming Messiah who's gonna save, right? That's what John's baptism was. And then when, the, when, when the, the apostles laid the foundation of the New Testament, all of a sudden we see a different baptism. The baptism that hopefully if you're a believer, you've taken place, taken part of. Well, what's that baptism all about and how is it different than John's baptism? That baptism is a baptism in the name of Jesus. So when you got dunked, um, somebody probably said, 
in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then you got dunked. And there's nothing magical about that. That's just a picture, a symbol of something that is a ultimate spiritual reality that happened when you got saved. When you got saved, you were not just baptized in water, you were literally fused to the life of Jesus Christ. And that's kind of what I want to unpack. That's kind of what I want to talk about uh, a little bit. Let me give you an example of what this is like, the difference between John the Baptist's baptism and baptism in Jesus. So I was rewiring an extension cord the other day, which I'd never done before, um, and it was kind of scary, but it wasn't plugged in, so it was good. So I took it all apart. I stripped back the wire. I have the, the, hot, uh, the left and the right wire, I don't know what they're called, and the ground, and I connected them to the new plug. I wanted to put a new plug on the end. Did it real great, um, and I taped it back up. Now, where's the power at? Is the power at putting a new plug in and preparing the cord? Where's the power when I plug the thing into the wall? Okay, the difference between John the Baptist's baptism and, and baptism in the name of Christ <laughs> is that the baptism of John the Baptist is just like preparing a, a cord. He was just preparing the way. He was setting the stage. Before we came up here to do live stream, we spent about an hour preparing the stage, okay? He was just setting the table. But the power came when Jesus actually conquered death on the cross and paid for sin on the cross and then rose to the right hand of the Father. And the power comes when we plug into that reality. That's what salvation is. It's not just being a fan of Jesus. It's not just saying, I like Jesus. It's plugging into his power. John the Baptist actually said, in John chapter 3, 28, he said, you yourself bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ. He made that really clear. I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him to prepare the stage. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. And in a matter of days, John the Baptist lost his head and truly did decrease. And Christ increased. John the Baptist knew that he was not there to be a source of life. He was there to prep the stage for the source of life that we would now plug into. And that is the gospel, that Jesus is that life. So that's the difference between those two. What Luke wants our attention on in this text is the preeminence of Jesus' baptism. And, and don't get me wrong, I'm not talking about dunking people. There's nothing magical about dunking people. That's just something we do in order to illustrate a reality that's happened. I'm talking about the preeminence of what happens when you say, yes, Jesus, I want union with you. I'm connecting to you. That's called salvation. The New Testament talks about this quite a bit. How, here's, here's our, point number two, okay, if you're taking notes, so we've talked about uh, why it's important. Now let's talk about how do we get it. How do we get the Zoe life? How do we get the Zoe life? Well, the text tells us that it's baptism in the name of Jesus. It's filling with the Holy Spirit. It's union with Christ. That's how we get it. And by the way, don't get confused. There's Pentecostal theology out there that says that you get saved and then maybe years later you get baptized with the Holy Spirit and you speak in tongues. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's accurate. Um, being saved is being baptized by the Holy Spirit. When you get saved, you are born again. And in that moment, you become united to everything that Jesus has done, is doing, and will do. Can I be any more clear about that? And the only way that that happens is by the Holy Spirit's work coming and living inside of you. That's the reality of that. So let me just look at some New Testament theology here and try to explain how beautiful. If I want you to walk away from one thing this morning, I want you to think about the power and the life 
that in a time like this, where it feels like people are feeling like their life is threatened, or maybe the life as we know it, or our economy life is threatened, what does real life look like in the midst of this? And this real life comes with union with Christ. So the New Testament gives us some examples of what this looks like, what union with Christ looks like. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. This is a verse that I talk about in premarital, when I do premarital with people. I'm trying to explain to them just how amazing a marriage is. You know, it's not just marriage, it's a marriage. You're creating a marriage. You're creating something in that moment. I take them to this passage and I say, okay, let's read this. Chapter 5, verse 31. Here's what Paul says about marriage. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And this is quoting Old Testament here. It says, and the two shall become, listen, one flesh. Okay? Two humans become one human. That's marriage. Okay? It's not just because the state says it. It's not just because the government says it. It's not just because a pastor says it. Um, literally, supernaturally, spiritually, a marriage, God creates one person. Okay? He creates one person. Now, Paul goes on to say, though, he says, this mystery is profound. Speaking of marriage. I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So what Paul is saying here is he's saying that, that marriage is like a model train of a more real thing. Marriage is just is actually a picture of something more real. What's, what is it that he's trying to get at? He's trying to get at the fact that when you get saved, you become married to Christ. Okay, that's the picture. You have a union with Christ. You become one with Christ. That's the, that's the reality of salvation, union with Christ. Let me tell you what this looks like, and, and this is a good deal for us. When I married my wife, um, we became one. Bank accounts became one. Now, not everybody does that, but I think you should. Okay, everything became one because we're one person now. She got a bunch of credit card debt, a really busted old car, and me. Okay, she got the raw end of the deal. I got a savings account with a good amount of money in it, a really nice car with a car payment, um, and, and, and someone that knew how to make a budget. Okay, so who got the ride into the deal? But regardless, all of those things became one at that point. So she got my debt, I got her savings. Woo, awesome, love it. Same thing happens when you, are, when you get saved. All of the credit and all of the debt and all of the dysfunction and all of the brokenness that you have, Christ takes it unto himself. And everything that he has that is valuable, he gives to you. This is what union with Christ looks like. So let me break it down for you. What do we get when we are united with Christ? Well, first of all, we get his Zoe life. We are reconnected to this divine eternal life. We get his perfect human record. He lives a perfect life, and then he gives it to us. He says, hey, hey all the stupid things you did, um, I'm gonna take my perfect life, and I'm gonna paste it right over the top. So when God the Father looks at you, he doesn't see all your screw-ups, he sees the perfect life of Jesus. What a good deal. He gives you his spirit. He gives you, Ephesians 1 says, all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Wrap your head around that. He gives you his leadership and his rule. He gives you his kingdom. Even now, in this moment, he gives you access and, and admittance to his kingdom. He gives you a future hope. He says he's going to build a home for you. He gives you a relationship with his father. He gives you the church. He gives you his mission. He gives you resurrected body like he got. You know you're going to get a better body than the one you have now? 
Okay, I mean, it'll be like yours, but it'll be better, okay? He, he's gonna do that with all of creation. He's gonna take the brokenness of this creation, he's gonna renovate it, get rid of all the death, all of the brokenness, and he's gonna resurrect it. That's why the resurrection mattered. Now, when you become united with Christ, everything that was bad in your life, he takes, and everything that is good in his life, he gives. So Sam, that just sounds like a really bad deal for him. It totally is. That's why the gospel's good news. It's good news for us. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him, being Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. So the perfect one took on our failures so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. Another picture of this in the New Testament, this union with Christ is baptism. And this is the one that we're seeing in our text, okay? So they come, uh, you know, Paul comes to Ephesus and these, he sees these guys who are followers of Yahweh and he says, hey, have you guys been baptized? Have you been united to the life of Christ yet? Have you, have you connected to what he's done on the cross? And they said, no, 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 we didn't even know that happened. We're, we're, we've been baptized by John, okay? What Paul is saying is he's saying, you need to be united with Christ. That's what salvation is. It's a union with him. And we see this in baptism. Listen to what Paul says later in Romans chapter six, verse three. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? What does that mean? It means that when Jesus was on the cross, you were actually there with him if you have union with him. Well, why would I want to be on the cross? Well, because he is paying for sin. So if you have union with Christ, your sins are paid for. It says we were buried therefore with him. That means when Jesus was put in the tomb, you were there with him. Well, see, I wasn't even born yet, I know. You, you, spiritually speaking, spiritually speaking, you were in the tomb with him. When he resurrected, you were resurrected with him. So it says, uh, you've been baptized into Christ Jesus, we're baptized into his death, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This is why the resurrection is so cool because Jesus conquered death. He says through our union with him, we will conquer death too. Death can't hold Christ, that means death can't hold us. Like he resurrected, we will resurrect. Like he got a new body, we will get a new body because we are married to him. That's what baptism is. That's what salvation is. You are hitching your wagon to his cart. No, I got that wrong. You are hitching your wagon to his horse. You make, does that make sense? It's like grafting a tree to a stump. You're taking the health of the stump and grafting another tree to it. And all of the health and the vitality uh, and the life that's coming from that stump now gets passed onto that tree. That's how orchards are so healthy. They do tree grafting. That's what union with Christ is. That's what salvation is. All of his health and his Zoe life, you are now connected to that life. This is good news. It's good news. Colossians 1.27 says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his mystery. Listen, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's this union with Christ that is our hope. That's why when the New Testament talks about salvation, it says we're born again. We're born again. Even though our bios, our physical body, is the same for now, our our, our, our soul is infused with a newness of life and it's Zoe life, it's God's divine life. So before you are saved, you have not yet been born in Zoe life. God brings this life to you and through you. 
2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The reality is, is someday we will get a new body that fits our new life. See, I wasn't made to die. None of us were. We weren't made to die. We were given an eternal soul because we were made in the image of an eternal God. And when death came in, it doesn't fit. It's not supposed to be here. What happens when you get saved is you are given a new eternal soul, a new eternal life, that one day you will get a new body that matches. I'm excited about that. So my point is just this. Our union with Christ becomes the interface. You guys understand what an interface is? An interface, uh, here's a perfect example. Right now I'm talking to a camera. A camera is connected to Trevor's computer. But that camera can't talk to Trevor's computer. Something needs to interface those two things. It needs to take the language of one and translate it to the language of the other. So what I'm saying is, is that the Zoe life of God is translated, is interfaced through his people. And in times like this, that's exactly what we need. Because all people see around right now is fear, death. What about my 401k? What about my retirement? What about my grandma? What about my sick friend? What about my vacation? Death, 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 death. And we, as the extension of God's Zoe life, have the ability to interface this death to God's life. Isn't that cool? Isn't that great? So last question, point number three, what does it look like? What does it look like? Okay, and I'll I'll pull these from our text, so if you still have your Bibles open. I'm just gonna give two examples from our text and we'll end. Two examples from our text of what this looks like, to have Zoe life coming through you into a dead world. Number one, well, kind of already said it, but I'll unpack it. Union with Christ means his Zoe now flows through you. This is what Paul was talking about in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. Okay? Old Paul was crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, he says, but Christ who lives in me. And the life, Zoe, that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So what Paul is saying is he's saying, Because my old life has been crucified with Christ, now Jesus' life is at work living through me. This is the reality of the Christian life. You know, it's it's not about, I'm gonna be a really good person so that people are really impressed by me, or, I mean, I I just need to, to bring life into situations. You actually can't. But God's life can work through you like a conduit. That's why Jesus told, I say this all the time, but it's why Jesus told the church that you're like a bunch of sticks. You're, he says you're a branch on a vine. The only time a branch has any life is if it's connected to the vine. The vine is producing the fruit through the branch. So in that same way, Paul is saying, it's not not I who live, it's Christ who lives through me and by faith and the Son of God. This Zoe life can pass through us like an interface, like a conduit to this broken world. And we see this in our text. First of all, we see it with Apollos. Okay, look at verse 26. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples and welcomed him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped, note that word, those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. So Paulus was a charismatic guy. He was gifted in and of his own right. But he did all that in bios. He did all that in just out of his own natural gifting, which God gave him when he was born. But then we see something happen. Aquila and Priscilla pull him aside and say, hey, Paulus, 
We love that you're a fan of Jesus. Have you connected to his life? Are you saved? Are you baptized into the life of Jesus Christ? Have you become one with his, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension? Are you part of his kingdom? And Apollos, of course, said, I'm in. And when he did, it exponentially increased his ability to be effective. <laughs> I mean, he says that he, he instantly is able to minister, and you see the characters of the Holy Spirit coming out of him. He helps. He says he greatly helped those who, um, showing by the scriptures. If you remember, the Holy Spirit is referred to as um, the paraclete, the helper, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He says, I'm going to send the helper to you, the Holy Spirit. And so in the same way now, Apollos becomes like the paraclete. He becomes a, a helper. It says that he was powerful in refuting the Jews in public, showing that the Christ is Jesus in the scriptures. That's another attribute of the Holy Spirit, power. Uh, the Holy Spirit is referred to often as um, dynamos, where we actually, uh, some people say dynamite, but I think a better uh, translation is like dynamics. The Holy Spirit's dynamic. You want to be dynamic? Let the Holy Spirit work through you. And man, I know the difference. I know the difference when there's Sam in my bios and Sam when Zoe life is passing through me. I can tell the difference. I don't like when I can just tell that, man, I'm not feeling that God's power is channeled through me right now. There is totally a difference. In Apollos, we instantly see a difference. We see it also in, in the next chapter, in chapter 19 of our text, uh, starting in verse 5. So we have the 12 in, in Ephesus. And on hearing this, it says, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. By the way, just a side note, this is a Ephesian Pentecost. We had a Jerusalem Pentecost, then we had a, a Syrian, uh, pardon me, we had a... Um, Samaritan Pentecost, and then we had Antioch Pentecost. Whenever God is posturing to do an amazing work, he pours out his spirit, okay? And that's what's happening here in this Ephesian Pentecost. But the point is just this, is that God wants to bring Zoe life into this situation. He wants to do it through you, and the way that you do that is connecting to him. Okay, so let me just speak as your pastor for a minute. Let me just speak as your pastor for a minute. You're gonna have a temptation, if you haven't already, over the next few weeks, especially if you're stuck at home, to do this all day long. Just, I mean, I, I've been struggling with that. Just check my news, check the news, check the news, check the news, because there's new updates every five minutes. What are people saying? What funny things are people saying? Let's watch Netflix. Let's just tune in to everything that the world has for you. Now, let, let me just say this. If you want to bring Zoe life into this situation, into our community, into our um, nation, into this world, into your family, into your home, if you want to bring God's Zoe life, don't spend all your time on your phone. Connect to him. Connect to your life source, man. Connect to your life source. That's how we're gonna make a difference in this thing. Here's my last point. Actually, let me give you an example really quick. Uh, a few years ago, I, I, I got to do a deathbed visit, um, which is, those are hard. Those are just straight up hard. I've done a few of them. And it's like, what do you say? You know, I mean, you go into this room, family's all there, person's about to pass any minute. And in this case, this, this, this older man who was a believer couldn't talk. He couldn't even give me any gestures. I, he was looking at me, but I didn't know if, if he was really hearing what I had to say. And I read him 1 Corinthians 15, which is what I always do. Because 1 Corinthians 15 talks about how um, even though our bodies are wasting away, even though our bios is dying, the zoe life of God is surging and growing 
And at some point after we die, God will give us a new body to match our Zoe life. And I'm sitting there and I'm watching this guy as I'm telling him this reality and this truth. And I just couldn't believe how good of news. I was overwhelmed by how good of news it was. Now, what does the world have to tell somebody in that moment? What would you tell, what would you tell somebody? If, you, if, if none of this was true, and you walk into a room and someone's about to die, what kind of fluffy nonsense are you going to pull out in that moment? Just have hope. Hope for what? The guy's 85 years old. He has cancer. He's dying. Well, you know, just, just think good vibes, good thoughts. Who cares about your vibes? What good news do you have for someone who's about to die? What good news do we have for the thousands of people that could die from this virus? What good news do we have for them? If this life is all that we have, who cares? Who cares? The good news is that this life is not all we have. The good news is that Christ came as the life into a dead world in order to conquer death through his life. And that for the believer, for the person that is united with Christ, you are not dying, you're taking your first breath into your truest reality, into a life that will never end. Oh, that's Sam, that's just wishful thinking. Okay, did Jesus rise from the dead? If Jesus rose from the dead, he said, and you're united to him, you'll rise from the dead too. That's hope. Because we have hope in this moment. The world doesn't have hope. The world's best hope is that we can salvage our economy. The world's best hope is that we can stave off this thing and make sure not too many people die and, and that doesn't overwhelm the hospitals. I want that too. We need to save the bios life for sure. I don't, I don't want anyone to die. I don't, want anyone, I, don't, I don't want any of this stuff to happen. But is there hope beyond just mitigating the death that's happening? And I believe the gospel is that hope. Here's my last point. You think coronavirus is contagious? What I just said, the gospel, is more contagious. It's more contagious. Look at verse 8. Paul entered in the synagogue for three months, spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God, by the way, that's just code for the Zoe life of God expanding in this world through his church. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them, took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Listen to this, verse 10. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. That's not China. That's all of Asia Minor, all of Turkey, that entire area of land, all heard the gospel within two years. Okay, the gospel is wildly contagious. Here's my tagline for today, okay? Keep your germs, spread the gospel. Keep your germs, spread the gospel. The gospel explodes in times like this. The reason it explodes in time like this is because these things bankrupt the false worldview that, the, that this world has to offer, okay? It bankrupts it. There is no hope in this. There's no hope for any of us if this gospel is not true, aside from some wishful thinking, we're all gonna die. And the gospel is the answer, it is the hope. It is the hope that everybody needs. And when the gospel is spread, it explodes. It is wildly contagious. Did you know that in China, in 1991, there were eight million Christians. In a place where Christianity is not welcome, in a place where churches are monitored, 
in a place where um, they are literally now asking every pastor to upload their sermon before they preach it. In a church where you literally have to have a picture of whatever his name is on the wall as you're preaching. And you have to sing the national anthem before you do church. Uh, in, a picture, in a country where you literally have uh, facial recognition going on in your church so they can see who the people are in case anything negative is said about the administration. In that country, in 1991, there were 67, or pardon me, there were 8 million Christians. In 2010, there are 67 million Christians in China. That's from 8 million to 67. Now, I understand that China has grown a lot, but understand how contagious the gospel is right now in a country that's trying to stamp out this reality. Within 200 years of Paul writing this, Christianity had completely overtaken the Roman Empire to the point where it became the religion of Caesar. It's wildly contagious, and it's contagious because it's true. It's contagious because it's the hope that everybody knows they need. It's contagious because everybody knows that death isn't supposed to be here. Silly as it is, every time I see death, whether it's a little chick or whether it's somebody I love, there's a part of you that goes, that's not right. And it's not right. And that's why Jesus came to this world. What did it, what did it say? If you remember, at the very beginning, I read it. John, the apostle, said that in Jesus was the life and the life was the light of the men. And, and he says that he came into this world in John 10 that they might have life. The Bible is not a story about us just getting through death. It's a story about life overtaking death. But there is no life on this world that can overtake death. Only his divine life imported into this world through Jesus, God the Father, becoming a man is the life that we need. If you remember at the beginning, I talked about the dead tree. Okay, I want you to look at our world that way. This world is, it's dying. Everybody knows it. It's dying. The only way it can be healed is for new life to come in. And that's exactly what Christ is gonna do. Let me just end with some advice. I already gave some of it to you earlier, but let me just end you some, some advice since I can't hang out with you guys this week. First of all, I want you to deconstruct what the enemy wants to do with this thing. Okay? I want you to deconstruct it. I want you to think, what, is, what, is the, what does the enemy want from coronavirus? Well, obviously, he wants death. Obviously, he wants all this stuff. But, but what does he want to do to the church? Because the church is his ultimate enemy. Okay? He wants, first of all, he wants you to panic. And he wants you to be fearful. And the reason is because you're useless when you're panicking. He wants you to be isolated and alone and depressed. That's what he wants. He wants you to sit at home, watching stupid movies, flipping through social media, feeling like you have no hope. He wants you to be stressed out. And the way that you combat that is you plug into the Zoe life of God. You do that through connecting with your brothers and sisters. You do that through his word. You do that through prayer. You do that through invitation. God, bring your life into my house right now. So I just want to invite you guys. Deconstruct what the enemy is trying to do here. Fight this with the life of Christ. Plug into the body, okay? Plug in, call, text, Check in with each other. Be the church, even if we can't gather. He wants you tuned out of his ultimate reality and tuned into the lies of what the enemy has here. I also want to encourage you guys, don't ignore the Spirit's prompting, okay? If God's putting it on your heart to call somebody, check in on somebody, do something to help in this moment, just do it. Just do it. 
We need all hands on deck right now in our community. We care about our city. We love our city. We love the people in this city. We love each other. Listen to the promptings. And for some of you out there, and this might just be a unique word for a few of us that are too busy, for some of us out there, you're home with your kids. I'm talking to myself right now. You're home with your kids. Be with your kids. What an amazing gift that we have some extra time right now with our families. It was interesting, Israel, uh, for, for hundreds of years, they disobeyed the Lord and never took a Sabbath year. They were supposed to take a Sabbath year every seven years. God said, take a year and let the ground rest. They never did it for hundreds of years. So many years that totaled up to a total of 70 years that they didn't take off. And you know what God did? He gave them over to the Babylonians and their land went to seed for 70 years. Okay, I just, I just think, you know, for me, I have been telling myself for so long, Sam, you're too busy, you're too busy, you're too busy, you're too busy, you're too everywhere, you've got too much stuff going on, you're on your phone too much, you're on your computer too much, and I almost feel like God, for some of us, is taking us by the shoulders and he's just saying, hey, stop, and just focus on what's important right now. You're home, you're stuck home, be home. Okay, I'm preaching to myself, but just some pastoral encouragement for you guys. We're gonna get through this, there's opportunity here like you wouldn't believe. God put us here in Grants Pass to plant this church six months ago, knowing this was gonna happen. And we're here for a purpose. So we'll be doing this every Sunday. We're gonna do a live stream. Next week, like I said, we'll be doing it at Heritage, which will be really fun to connect with all those guys. Um, we're gonna check in through technology, you know, throughout the week and uh, praying for you guys by name, thinking of you guys often. I love you guys, let's pray. God, thank you so much for the gospel. Thank you that it, there is such good news today. And it's not just about trying to keep this life that we have right now. It, it's about a life beyond what we could possibly imagine. Your life, God, that we want to be connected to. I just pray for everybody at home, everybody that's tuning in right now, that you would just bless them. You would fill them with your spirit today. You would encourage them with this good news. Father, we love you. We trust you. We give our lives to you. Thank you that we're united to you, God, and that your life is living through us. In Jesus' name.